turning this morning to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, and reading from verse 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And our subject is the uniqueness of Christ's resurrection. Well, everything is unique about the gospel. There's nothing like it in all the world. And there is no one like Christ, the Saviour of the world. We think of his incarnation. The incarnation of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, unique that God would enter into our world and God would become man. Then the life lived by Christ and the extraordinary miracles in the history of the world, no one has ever accomplished so many miracles, witnessed by so many people beyond all controversy, Miracles of healing, restoration of limbs, sight to the blind, raising of the dead, done at a word or at a touch, for the most part, instantaneous, irreversible, lasting until death. Whole cities at times, thousands of people. Such a thing has never happened in the history of the world. Never been such a one. His Atoning death on Calvary's cross, the atonement of Christ, unique that God would come and suffer and die in the place of sinful men and women in order that their sin could be purged away. The plan of salvation, nothing like it. The resurrection from the dead. Oh, yes, uh, you were accustomed to reading. There are many accounts of resurrection. Really? People say these things. But where? And who? Oh, they say, then uh, grasping, clutching at straws. Well, for example, Romulus was raised from the dead. Romulus never existed. Romulus is a, a legend. Most historians think there's no question of it. He never existed. He's always presented as a legend. The way back founder of Rome. Nothing real about him. And then other people are named, and they all turn out to be Greek or otherwise pagan gods. Myths, mythical characters. Nobody ever shook their hand. Nobody ever met them. Nobody ever knew them. They're inventions and have always been seen as such. The resurrection of Christ is unique, that one should be raised from the dead and ascend into heaven. And the prediction of all these things, as I often say, is unique. To think that centuries before, many, many times, with great precision and detail, all these things were the subjects of prophecy and prediction. Where else has that occurred? Where else is there ancient literature predicting 
one who would come, who would answer to the following characteristics and achieve the following things. Only one in the whole course of human history has ever been predicted and fulfilled those predictions to the letter. Everything about the gospel is unique. And that is one of the reasons why it is so astonishing that we all, by nature, reject the Christian gospel and pretend it's something vague and distant and unclear and unestablished and unprovable. Why? Because of our prejudice against God. There is nothing like it and nothing like these things. Take this letter here. Well, now, the uh, resurrection probably took place in A.D. 33. One of the traditional dates is A.D. 30, but uh, the most convincing is A.D. 33. This letter was written in A.D. 55. So that isn't long, dear friends. That's 22 years. And so many of the people, the majority of the 500 who are mentioned here, were still alive. The resurrection is still a live issue, as it were, at the time of the, time of the book of Acts. That was written five years later. That's only 27 years. This is all current material. Think 22, 27 years back. You don't regard things that happened then as ancient history. They're all easily attested. The witnesses are still alive. It's all a certain matter. And yet, time and time again, you will read vague statements like, these days anyway, in unbelief, oh, the Christianity was written and invented and concocted centuries, some people say, after the events. What ignorance of facts. People just have no idea what they're saying when they retail these quite nonsensical things. Here, in this first letter to the Corinthians, we're reading certain facts about the resurrection. And the letter is only 22 years after the event. And the witnesses are still there. So let's look at some of these great verses. And verse 4, that Christ was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And again, as I've mentioned, it was something that was all prophesied and predicted. And the apostle is able to say that twice concerning the death of Christ according to the scriptures and the resurrection of Christ according to the scriptures. He repeats himself. Now, there were witnesses. It was attested. These things were written while the witnesses were still alive. It was, incidentally, attested also by Jewish writers, historians, and pagan historians, not just the gospel records and the epistles and the book of Acts in the New Testament. And most of the apostles, possibly all of them, but certainly most of them died, crucified or at the stake by burning or stoning because they said these things, I saw the risen Lord. 
these men were not just witnesses. They were witnesses who would give their lives rather than deny their statements that they had seen the risen Lord. Verse 5, And that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. Actually, uh, before he was seen of Cephas, Paul doesn't say he was the first, he was seen by Mary and other women. But Paul doesn't mention them here because he's clearly only mentioning the public men who were witnesses, like the apostles and preachers. He's not mentioning the women who did not go about in those days publicly attesting this or preaching about this. He's talking about the witnesses only. And that he was seen of Peter, then of the twelve. The twelve there is used as a term to describe the apostles because actually after Peter he wasn't seen by twelve, he was seen by ten because Judas was no more. And Thomas, in his time of doubting, wasn't there. So he was seen after Peter by ten. But they're still described as the twelve, because that's how they were known. But they're not literally twelve at this point in verse five. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once. We're not told much about that, and this is the only place in the Bible where the 500 witnesses are referred to. Was it the same as the meeting with the disciples in Galilee? Very likely, because at this stage there were not probably 500 in Jerusalem. In the uh, uh, opening of the book of Acts, we read there were 120 disciples. 500 is a lot. People who come from all over the place. So this was probably the gathering at Galilee, but we can't be certain about that. After that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. What's that? 300? 400? Still alive, as Paul wrote 22 years later. But some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, after that he was seen of James. Well, we know James, the half-brother of Jesus, and long-term for 30 years, pastor at Jerusalem. We know he's seen the risen Lord, but uh, uh, here is the only direct reference to it. Then of all the apostles... Maybe that refers to the following Lord's Day when he appeared to them with Thomas. Or maybe it refers to a subsequent time when uh, more were gathered. Remember there were 70 people sent out by the Lord as disciples and they might loosely have been called apostles though they were not apostles uh, by office strictly speaking. But anyway, uh, either the 10 plus Thomas or the 70 were involved in verse 7. And verse 8, last of all, last of all, this is the last appearance of the risen Lord. 
last of all. This is an important phrase because some people call themselves apostles today. Well, one of the qualifications of an apostle in the New Testament is that he'd seen the risen Lord. And if Paul was the last to whom the risen Lord appeared, then there can't possibly be any more apostles. Last of all, he was seen of me also. Now, of course, this is after the ascension. All the other appearances of the risen Lord are before his ascension. But after his ascension, miraculously, amazingly, he appears to Saul of Tarsus. But it's the last appearance of the risen Lord. And he calls himself as of one born out of due time. A very difficult term in the original Greek, which could mean that Paul is saying he was like an abortive birth. But I think our King James translators, and this is a favorite way for translators today too, have taken it correctly as of one born out of due time. If it's an abortive birth, then the Apostle Paul would be saying something like this. Oh, when I was born again and made an apostle, it wasn't like the other apostles. For them, it was done over a period of three years and they were instructed by the Lord. And then after his death and resurrection, well, then they functioned as apostles. But with me... It was like an abortion or a premature birth. Suddenly I was born again and given by direct revelation all the truth that they had learned over three years. And some commentators in the old days used to take it that way. But much more naturally is the rendering of the King James Version, one born out of due time, simply meaning I wasn't made an apostle at the same time as the others, but I am the one and only one who was made an apostle subsequent to the time of the apostles. And that's the meaning of the phrase, I'm sure. Last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. And then he utters his unworthiness. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, by God's free and undeserved mercy alone, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, futile. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Geographically, extensively, of course he did. Far greater territories. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. That's very important, that statement of the apostles. His humility shines out. Oh, dear friends, what a model for the ministry 
always. He refuses all applause. What is a minister of God? A spokesman, that's all. One who speaks and expounds the word of God. One who has no authority of his own. One who reproduces and explains God's word. He has no inherent special place or office. He should never be applauded. He should never be made the object of hero worship. He must never be clad in special gowns and robes denoting some superior being or status. He must be like the Apostle Paul. He would never claim to be anything like as instrumental as the Apostle Paul or as blessed or as used. Then he better get in line behind the Apostle Paul and present himself as a servant of God and a servant of the word and no more. And that's our aim today, always, or should be, as ministers of God and of people. And these verses are very precious. Well, verse 11, wherefore, whether it were I or they, the other apostles, so we preach and so ye believed. I'm almost tempted to pause with this verse. It's so precious to us. It's the primacy of preaching. So we preach and so ye believed. There is not to be any emotional manipulation in the proclamation of the gospel. Some people, they advocate drama and so-called Christian films, and all kinds of things to communicate the gospel through drama. But that's emotional manipulation. That can't result in true converts. Some people try only intellectual means, and they put all their attention and effort into apologetics to try to convince people intellectually concerning the truth of the gospel. Apologetics are very useful and helpful and very comforting, but they can never save. The essential proclamation of the gospel, these are doctrines and truths to be proclaimed, explained, with the preacher aiming at the understanding and the will together and people must be appealed to and yes you can persuade them but there must be a clear presentation of the gospel that is the ordinance of God here it is preaching so we preach herald proclaim and so ye believed these truths must be believed with all our heart in order to be saved. Of course, if you truly believe the gospel, then you obey it too. That is to say, you obey its command to repent and to yield your life to Christ and to trust him. But that's because you believe. Understanding by the power of the Spirit is vital.
It's part of the illuminating, regenerating work of God. But I must move on because I want to talk from verse 12. And this is another heading for us now. We've looked at attestation and just the names of certain prominent witnesses. But when I come down to verse 12, I'd like to say the resurrection is far more than a demonstration. If you keep that in your mind, you've got it all. The resurrection is far more than a demonstration of the divinity of Christ. It is that, but it is far more than a demonstration of the divine nature of Christ possessing everlasting life. It actually accomplishes things. It is a vital part of the gospel. And this is what we need to have clear in our minds. So from verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? There was a heresy that had got to Corinth and was fertile in Corinth. It's not a majority of the people affected by it, but probably a substantial number. And this heresy said there is no such thing as bodily resurrection. How can you say that, says the Apostle Paul, when he knew the answer? The reason why they could say it is because but they were Corinthians and they were heavily influenced by Greek philosophy and the Greek philosophers almost all taught that matter is intrinsically evil. Therefore, the body is essentially an evil thing. So, of course, there could be no resurrection to a place called heaven of this evil body That's what the philosophers thought. So resurrection, bodily resurrection, was impossible because all matter is evil. This was probably the same heresy that Hymenaeus and Philetus was teaching. They said the resurrection is past already. They explained it this way. There's no resurrection because matter is evil. So this is about uh, the new birth into Christ and spiritual renewal. The resurrection has happened already if you're converted. That was their heresy and they had to be warned. And the same thing is cropping up in Corinth. But how can you go for that, says the Apostle Paul. Verse 13, if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? You're denying the resurrection of Christ. That's what they were saying. No resurrection under any circumstances. Verse 14, and if Christ be not risen, because his resurrection is more than a demonstration, then it makes our preaching futile. And your faith is also futile. Well, why? Well, we'll consider in just a moment. 
Yes, and we have found, verse 15, false witnesses of God because we've testified to the resurrection and it isn't true. So therefore, we apostles and witnesses of the resurrection are liars. Verse 16, it's so important, he repeats himself, then applies it in verse 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is futile, ye are yet in your sins. And what's more, all the Christians who've died are perished. No resurrection, no bodily resurrection. And it gets worse. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, anticipation, what sort of anticipation is this? I believe in Christ and he will bless me in life, but there's no bodily resurrection in the eternal hereafter. At best, we shall be just spirits drifting about in a spiritual realm. No body, no physical elements, no sights, no view of each other, just spirits, somehow or other. But no bodily resurrection. Well, says the Apostle Paul, if that were true, we would be of all men most miserable. Perhaps the translation is a, a little strong because uh, what the Greek literally says, we are of all men to be most pitied. Pitied. Why pitied? Well, we've served the Lord. And in living for him, we've suffered reproach and rejection from many people. And we've trimmed our sails in life and we've turned away from excesses and excess and sensual enjoyment and pleasure and rich living and doing everything for ourselves and for number one. And we've given all that up. We're to be pitied because it's for nothing that we've given it up. And when dear John Newton said, Saviour, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am, and he wrote that great hymn, Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. It isn't true. We're just spirits drifting about in a kind of spiritual medium in eternity. No matter, no bodies, no new creation, nothing like that. We're to be pitied. Any sacrifice we've made or persecution we've endured is for nothing. So the apostle says, just think through this foolish denial of the resurrection because the resurrection achieved so much. Obviously, it did demonstrate the divinity of Christ. It did demonstrate that he's more than a man. Without the resurrection, you couldn't be sure of that. He died. He's extinct. That's the end of it. He's finished. He was just a man. The resurrection is vital to demonstrate 
He was the God-man. He would rise again. He did something to taste death for us. And in his human flesh, he truly suffered it. But he could rise again. Yes, it says that. But he, it tells us that his atoning death was a complete success. How do I know? The atoning death of Christ was successful. That he bore the punishment of all my sins. That I have nothing to answer for. That he didn't just suffer for some of them and then perish. That he took it all away. He rose again. That is the evidence and the proof and the certainty that the atonement was entirely successful and we may trust in him. And then he rose again to guarantee to us that we will rise again. Because he rose, we may rise. So the Apostle Paul calls the resurrection the first fruits, where they took the first sheaf of wheat or whatever that bore grain that was moving in advance of the harvest and they took it up and made it the centre of an act of thanksgiving and worship and it was called the first fruit and you give praise to God the harvest is bound to follow the first grain has appeared it's the token the evidence, the certainty that the so sorely needed harvest is coming in its wake. And that's the resurrection. It's the first fruits. Our anticipation of bodily resurrection one day in eternal glory in the new heavens and the new earth is based upon the resurrection of Christ. He led the way for his people, triumphed, over death and sin. Project Earth is to go on and be preserved because Christ has secured the victory over death on Calvary. It achieves far more. It's theologically far more important than even a demonstration of divinity. And they'd swept it all away by listening to Greek philosophy. What a tragedy. What a mistake. Well, I come down and read the verses because we must come to conclusion. But in verse 15, yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. But then in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we of all men most miserable. Verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Then the theological explanation, verse 21, for since by man Adam came death through the fall, by man, the God-man Jesus Christ, came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. All believers, that is. It says all, but it clearly means all believers, not literally all, 
because it goes on to say, verse 23, but every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Verse 23, every man in his own order. Order. Interesting word. The Greek is, well, it's tagma, and it refers to, say, troops assembled in their ranks. Something of that kind. Order. Every man in his own order. When the troops paraded in olden times, the officer commanding was out in the front. He led the march, the parade, and the troops were all arranged according to rank and divisions and units in his wake. And that's the word that the apostle uses. Every man in his own order, there's a very set order of things. First of all comes the great work of salvation, the reign of Christ, gathering out his people from every land and nation through the gospel age. And then, when the gospel age is complete and the elects are fully gathered in and the reign of Christ, gathering in souls, has accomplished its objective, then, afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. He comes again. Verse 24, then cometh the end. A very important then. The word then here means at that time. Some people try to stretch the word then. Oh no, they say. It doesn't mean then and there. It does. Can't mean anything else in the Greek in the way in which it's put. It doesn't mean then and there. It means afterwards, over a period of time, subsequently, at some time. No, the apostle is saying, and this is important, at Christ's coming, then, at that time, cometh the end. That's it. But Paul, you've forgotten something. What has he forgotten? You've forgotten the millennium. Well, it's a fact. Paul has never heard of that. He's never heard of the millennium. Every man in his own order, according to God's agenda and God's plan and God's timetable, Christ will come at the head of the parade. And then is the day of judgment and all things are disclosed then and there. He'd never heard of the millennium. Search all the epistles of Paul, he'd never heard of it. Search all the words of Christ, he'd never heard of it. And he's the eternal son of God. So that's a question, I'm not going into it now. How can there be a millennium? It isn't there. It's in the book of Revelation. But it must be a figure. 
because no one else knows about it. In the New Testament, you have to try and lever it in. Oh, the then must be a long then, a thousand years long. Impossible. That exegesis is impossible. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, returned his commission and become once again one of the three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternal reign. When he shall have put down all rule, all authority, all power, this will have to be, dear friends, for another time. Exactly what that means. What a great day and a magnificent event. All authority and power, civil, military, everything. Even the husband being the first in the home is gone in that day. And we all shine equally as stars in the eternal kingdom. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The resurrection, dear friends, and what it means. Am I a fair-weather Christian? I'm happy in the Lord when everything is going well. And when a crisis comes, I can't cope with it. And down I go. We can all be guilty of that, dear friends. How much it would help us to ever keep in view the resurrection, the great token of bodily resurrection, the eternal reward to which we go, the marvels of eternal glory with Christ and his people, fixing our eyes on things ahead, then the troubles of this present life, even things that are truly grievous, are so much easier to bear. And joy in the Lord is always present alongside them because we keep our eye on the privileges which are ours, undeserved by grace alone, the resurrection of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ.